Hi, this is Randy Randall of No Age and host of the podcast Hyphen It with Randy Randall. I want to welcome our newest sponsor of the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms and artists keep 100% of their royalties. Hyphenate listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash hyphenate. Again, that's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash H-Y-P-H-E-N-A-T-E. Go get your music streaming everywhere now. what's happening thank you so much for joining me here on hyphen it with randy randall that is me today my guest is the incredible guitarist and world-class chef chidi kumar uh chidi was in bands like the cherry valance and birds of avalon super awesome retro garage rocking awesome bands and she held down the guitar duties in both those bands as well as having uh, an illustrious early uh, band management career as well before going into uh, restaurant touring and chefing. Is that the correct verb to chef, to cook? I think to, uh, and on this episode, you'll hear uh, Chidi explain the difference between what a cook and a chef is. Um, the role of restaurants is definitely new to me. I mean, I've eaten at a lot of restaurants, but I've never really worked uh, at a restaurant or been behind the scenes at one. And Chidi just has such a great, cool way of explaining her process of how to, how she got from guitars to, uh, kitchens and really, really just, just interesting, cool person that has a great story. And I think, you know, talks about, you know, the immigrant, um, experience growing up of a child of immigrants and sort of the expectations and pressures put on somebody in that position and how she finally was able to sort of combine all of her talents and passions in, in the kitchen and sort of bridge the gap between leading these double lives that so many of us hyphenates live, you know, even starting off as childhood, you know, from being in a background where there's things that are expected or required of you. Or that was something she had said, you know, that her, her parents, you know, required certain actions like going to school, getting good grades. There was, you know, behaviors like going to concerts were not permitted growing up, but that was so much of her story. So, I won't spoil anything. I will let her explain it all, but I was really just um, blown away and just really happy understanding uh, her hyphenate journey. So join me now. Hi, Chidi. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I am obsessed with your um with your particular blend of of uh guitar and cooking this is uh, all the research i've done is it sounds so intriguing can you tell me a little bit about maybe we'll start with the guitar first where that came from and then we'll get into the the food after Um, what was your adventure to guitar well it was you know most things i've done have been sort of a convoluted path um i've just always been obsessed with music and um just the the style of music I like was always very guitar forward. And, um, I, you know, spent the first eight years of my life in India and then we moved to the Bronx and, um, you know, being, I was eight 
being a, an immigrant kid is never easy, but you know, my respite was food and music and radio stations were playing some cool stuff. And there was a lot of great things happening in New York city at that time. And, um, I didn't really realize, you know, that that was special, but it's just like, wow, this, you know, I just liked a lot of music. And I asked for a guitar for my 12th birthday and, um, didn't get it, but my sister had an acoustic, uh, and so I learned a few things, you know, um, down by the valley. Like my, my mom was like, go, go take this guitar lesson at this community center. And I was like, ugh, it was the worst, you know, folk music, like not my thing at all. I learned the intro to Stairway to Heaven. And then I was like, I think, I, I think what I need is an electric guitar. And they were like, absolutely not. So, um, I just kind of abandoned that and just kind of stayed in, um, music through like the, the, you know, the management side. And that's what I did in college at UMass. Um, I worked at the radio station and I just kind of never really thought that I had the ability. Well, I really loved music and I wanted to perform, but it was just kind of a fantasy, you know? And then I moved to Raleigh as, um, and I was kind of pursuing a career in music management and I met my now husband, Paul, and we, um, I don't know, just kind of like that era in the 90s where like uh, <laughs> chops weren't as important, you know, um, and it was more about the guts and the expression. And so he was like, just let's just play. And so we started playing and I was playing bass. I did that for about a year and a half and then just started playing guitar because I played bass like a lead guitar player. <laughs> so, um, That's amazing. Yeah, and just um, kinda did it. I'll jump in. I'll jump in. I want to go back. There's so much you, we, we blew through. So I want to, I'm so curious what, you know, what, what was the music that you were hearing that you were attracted to? You said it was not the folk music. It was, close, was it more Led Zeppelin? What was yeah. sort of some of those early music memories yeah. that really kind of spoke to you? Like, you know, the Ramones and um, mm. Talking Heads and Devo, but then also like Def Leppard and Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and, you know, The Who. I mean, I just was kind of all over the place. I loved The Cure. I loved Depeche Mode. Um, there was just so much happening. Um, and, you know, I was like, into Duran Duran too, you know, <laughs> yeah. very confused, but like now I still, you know, all those bands still really hold up. So I think I had pretty good taste for a kid. <laughs> um, yeah. And was this just on, on the radio, you know, driving around with the radio going, well, or are we going to record shops? Or are we going to see live music? What was that experience no like? No live you know? music allowed. Yeah. Um, you know, okay. my, my parents are Indian and I'm a girl, so that wasn't really okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> very permitted for me. But um, we were, my sister was, you know, se is seven years older. And so she had sort of a conduit. She had a friend named Joss who was like Filipino and she was really punky and really cool. And she always had like good records. So she would always turn my sister on to good stuff and then we would go to um flea markets and there were you know like I remember buying I remember my sister bought the first Cars record um there like oh, it was like yeah. very vivid memory and um you know then I became Cars obsessed for a minute and but the Pretenders were a huge huge thing um Blondie and you know um and then Tina Weymouth in particular was just like so cool and I I don't know. It was just like very um, alluring to think of, I don't know, this idea of a woman in a band who's not, you know, the sexy front person. Like I love Debbie Harry, <laughs> but she was still kind of weird. Um, I just really like the idea of playing guitar and not being a front person. 
That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, when, and you're, you said you're in the Bronx. You're in New York, mm-hmm. in, in, and this is in the early 80s, mm-hmm. I'm imagining. Yeah. I mean, what, what a hotbed of just music and, you know, and, and hip-hop and everything kind yeah, of just exploding everything. around at the same time, too. Yeah, like, I went to public high you know, school like, in, in the Bronx, and it was like, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Boogie down. Yeah, you had it all kind of happening all around right. you. Right. I didn't even know it. You know, I just thought it was just yeah. normal. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> How amazing. Were, were there any other uh, musicians or artists or, or, you know, kind of hip-hop, uh, you know, artists that came out of your scene or out of your school or your time, your generation there that you were aware of? Or uh, not was that it, I knew of, you know. Was broken apart. I was also okay. kind of like a nerd, you know. So, like, um, <laughs> I was required to get good grades, and so I did. Um, I don't know. I, I was very... Um, you know, not to be like too dramatic, but I was pretty isolated because, you know, I, when we moved, I was in the fourth grade. And, um, so it took like a solid four or five years for me to become, I don't know, not even, I was, I I don't know if I've ever been comfortable in my skin here, you know, but, um, (laughs) I, I didn't really have like cool friends, you know, um, all my friends were also other immigrants. And that was the fortunate thing about, you know, living in, in New York is that like, if we were in Kansas, like I wouldn't have had, you know, that kind of exposure. But I think the thing that I bonded with my friends with was like, you know, some, some of them were like, you know, born here, but they were, you know, children of immigrant parents. And then some of them were like really two years into the country. So we had this sort of like, um, misfit good grades but still kind of like not comfortable with being smart and you know it's kind of cliche now yeah no but 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 i i mean it it strikes me as um such an interesting you know sort of uh um, bedrock to build this sort of hyphenated life on that that you were almost required to late to live a double life the one that was that your parents required as you said you know it's such an interesting choice of words that you were required to to perform certain you know grades and and cultural sort of signifiers but at the same time have any kind of personal valuation or personal depth and you know find satisfaction on on the life that you wanted to live you know this double life was uh, seemed to be baked in and which i think is an interesting observation i hadn't i had thought of as you know as a child of, of immigrants yeah. in america it's a, speaking of the cars right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> um but yeah so i mean good. i remember even thinking and being worried like is it okay that I, like I, I literally have like two accents you know um mm. my my school yeah. accent and my home accent like i you know i i was really good at cultivating secrets and i worried about it i thought you know maybe i'm a bad kid maybe i'm a liar like Um, but it's just like survival and there's nothing that can stop somebody from being who they are, you know, whether it's in secret Mm -hmm. or not, it's like you, you have the passions that you have. And I think sometimes we come in the world with it and, um, you know, it's a disservice to our own self to, to ignore that. If you're even able to. Right, right. But and then but even I, you know, we'll get into food in, in, in a little bit where I want to kind of pace us out. Sure. But I just but it just strikes me, too, is the just the idea of of, you know, one or the other, that it's a binary kind of code switching. And then to the point of then integrating through maturity or, you know, as, as, as life goes on, you know, integrating those cultural sort of identities, you know, into your personal identity and finding ways like that, whether it's through food or, you know, through other expressions. I was, it, it's, it sounds, it sounds fascinating. And obviously, you know, the, the name of the show is Hyphenate. And I, I really find myself drawn to these ideas of, you know, cause I think I was very similar. I didn't have just one passion. I loved, you know, skateboarding 
and movies and and guitar and you know and and all these you know these things that you know I think most people have this. I feel like it's it's a funny thing to to call, to call someone a hyphen because I think most people are. You know, I think this yeah. is just sort of a natural thing we everybody does. And it's so odd to me that like nobody gives you permission or they didn't in my generation uh, to be that mm-hmm. way when you're a kid, you know, it's like everybody asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's just like, how do you ask a nine-year-old or even a 15-year-old <laughs> or a 19-year-old? Like you don't make this one decision for the rest of your life. And I think that this is the thing that I think probably causes anxiety to young kids and uh, young adults, you know, to this day, like most people have three careers in their life. And that's sort of like when somebody told me that 10 years ago, I was like, oh, no shit. Wow. Amazing. You know, that's that's yeah. the normal way to be, because otherwise you're just a flat, static human with like one direction. I mean, that's so boring, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we're all, we're, we, you know, the, yeah, we contain many layers that's right. and, and things that then value and things we can bring value to different situations that we're in. I think that's so much of it, too, is sort of what do you bring to the place that you're at, you know, in terms of, you know, value, participation, community, all of those sort of signifiers that we have to show that I have value here. I, I belong here. That's right. Whatever that is. So I, I, I think, you know, you were saying, um, oh, I want to, I want to continue down that line, but I'm also want to geek out and nerd out for a little bit, just as a, from one guitarist to another. What was the guitar that you wanted that you didn't get? And then what was the final, the guitar that you did finally get? You know, that's from a gear perspective. Well, uh, you know, uh, being a Chrissy Hind sort of person, I just wanted a telly. And um, so my first like real guitar, I had a pink Ibanez, which I don't think really counts, you know, (laughs) single pickup (laughs) with a push button, you know, volume knob for uh, gain. (laughs) Uh, It was fun to play, but, you know, kind of a joke and kind of like. I was ashamed of it because I didn't want to be a girl guitar player, you know? So Mm -hmm. I never played that out, but, um, I managed uh, a band that, uh, was, um, you know, they got like a big major label record deal and like whatever, um, their guitar player gave me and Paul, Paul and I were already together Mm -hmm. a guitar to share, but I took it. Um, it's a Tele Deluxe, a 1972 Tele Deluxe and that guitar, we still have, we still fight over it. He, now it's, it's his era, I guess, but that that's the guitar I played on tour, like my first, you know, three or four tours. And then I started buying, you know, I got a, uh, an SG, I got a Les Paul, you know, I got, I got an, a, like a Dan Electro copy, Electra. Um, I currently have a Guild SA something, something. It's a, it's an odd, <laughs> I really love this guitar. Um, yeah, I, I love guitars. <laughs> How fun, yeah. right? I think there is something about guitarists that you know that you know. Yeah, you ask any guitarist, and it's, it's rare you ever find one guitar or a guitarist with one guitar. Yeah, there's that's something right. about guitarists that are kind of you know, it's a tool belt or it's a you know, it's a collectory kind of thing, and it's that's they all have different mojo. There's different songs in each guitar. That that's you right, know, and they have different. You, they make you play differently, and if you're writing songs, you you think of things differently. Things different expressions come out of your hands. It's like. You know, no carpenters just got like, I only use Phillips heads. Like, well, you're kind of screwing yourself up there, buddy. Yep. Each pickup, each wood, each neck, each kind of thing does what it does. You know what I mean? It's not, you can't use one for everything. That's incredible. Um, So, so then going to UMass and, and, and psychology, that was, that was the next step. Mm -hmm. And, and then, and then I imagine there's, there's, 
was that where you start began to see live music or what was the live music portion of this too? Cause that's such a big part of music. There's the internal life of music that we hear in our heads alone, but then experiencing the community of music, I have to imagine was a big part huge. of your story. What was that like for you? Yeah, that was a yeah. huge thing. I mean, we, um, uh, when I was a kid, like I didn't, you know, I think I tagged along with my sister to like a show at central park and that was it. And then, uh, who was that? Uh, it was the Ramones and the, the Pretenders opened, but I, we missed them. Uh, Subway. That is know, insane. I know, but you know, so it was Pretenders like. Pretenders opening for the Ramones in the park. Yeah. Yeah. What year was this? Do you remember? Uh, I was, what I lineup? Was re- that was when we first came to America. So it was like 19, I don't know, 1980 or so, something like that. Wow. Um, Incredible. Yeah, it was. Thank, you for old, thank God for older sisters. I know, right? Well, she wasn't thrilled <laughs> that I was with her, but yeah, it's all right. Um, but at UMass, uh, you know, I was uh, ended up working with a concert board. So not only did I like go to shows, like I you know, helped put them on. I was involved in, you know, everything from meeting the band, hospitality, like helping the stage manager, doing all the promotion. Like I really got into it. Um, and the whole, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think I've always just loved having a party and, um, the whole setup, you know, like inviting a band, having them say yes, you know, figuring out what time they get there, what kind of food they like, and like imagining how tired or thirsty or hungry they might be and what they might like. And like, you know, making sure that the sound was good and like they had, you know, good accommodations. Like there's just so many, um, it's kind of like a restaurant. There's so many aspects that go into something that feels very simple and normal, you know, like, oh, I'm going to a show. Nobody thinks about, you know, the fact that the band like drove six hours and you know, maybe left something behind at the last gig last night, you know, um, Mm -hmm. it's just, I I just think I became obsessed with that, that whole aspect of it. And, you know, the idea of them kind of like living in a van was just so fascinating to me. (laughs) And I, and I imagine you got to live, live that life Um, to to a degree that yeah, yeah. (laughs) more than made up for it. (laughs) Curiosity satisfied. (laughs) Incredible. Uh, and, and what were some of those bands that you were bringing to the, to the campus or some of the bands you were, you were interested in at that point? Um, I mean, there were a lot, uh, like, gosh, we hosted some crazy stuff. Um, everybody from like, um, oh, I worked at this club too. I mean, they, I, I remember like the Fela Kuti being one of them and then wow. like Incredible. Robin Hitchcock and the Chameleons and the Connells from Raleigh and, um, you know, like, um, Dinosaur Jr. was, you know, Jay Mascus had lived in Amherst, so that was an easy one. Buffalo Tom. um, Man, it's just a lot. There was a band called Dump Truck, I think. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Just tons of stuff. Uh, You know, we did a jazz series that was, like, affiliated with the the school, so it was, like, um, Steve Terrell. Man, it was, there were a lot. It was a lot wow, of music. It's eclectic, really eclectic, and like yeah. um, we, there, I wasn't a part of the big concert series. Like we did, we always did a big outdoor show, and like Queen Latifah was a headliner. I mean, it was it was wow. massive. You know, real, real stuff. That concert board. I don't know if they're still as um, legit as it was when in my era, but it was it was for real. <laughs> yeah, like all those people could run, you know, giant venues if they wanted to. That's amazing. Yeah, we we played um, 
oh gosh, I don't know, some kind of um, cafeteria show or something very early on at, at UMass. Oh, yeah. So it's almost like a, a rec center or something. Yeah. 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 What, what band were you in? It's really fun. Uh, so I, I'm in a band right now called No Age. Oh, and yeah. I, we were in a band before called Wives. Okay. And I think yeah. we'd come there in the early in the early 2000s. I think it was a Wives show. And it was, you know, very, very small. It's kind of underground sort of thing. Yeah. But it's a lot of fun. But um, uh, great. So then, from so then from UMass to to the uh, the South to Raleigh. Yeah. What what was that transition like, and what what brought you there, and sort of where was where was that journey? Really, also just kind of incidental and convoluted. Uh, you know, I mentioned the Connells, and that was you know mm-hmm. them, and like you know what Mitch Easter was doing, and REM, and you know all that like Southern romantic thing was. Um, I don't know. It was just kind of calling me and I, um, a friend of mine and I took a road trip during like spring break and we just drove down here and, you know, I knew a couple of people here and I don't know what it was about Raleigh that I just really, um, well now I know what it was, but then I didn't know what it was. Um, it was just really, it felt safe and I liked it. I don't know. I felt very at home here. Um, and I didn't think, you know, I mean, I, you know, it was like, do I graduate? I didn't want to go into clinical psychology and I didn't feel like I had any options in that academic route that were like really, um, felt I, I didn't resonate with it and I didn't want to be mm. a clinical psychologist. And, um, I didn't want to work at a major label record company. I wasn't really cool enough to be in, uh, like work at Matador. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to stay in Boston. I really just disliked that city. Like not that I was in Boston, but that, you know, that was like the only option. And yeah. I just figured, I don't know, Raleigh was affordable. It felt like a place that I could kind of figure my shit out and just wanted to stay here for a couple of years. And, you know, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so that <laughs> so much for two years, but, um, you know, now I realize like, the architecture is so similar to like the the town that I grew up in in India called Chandigarh, and um, this like you know small city capital, but not a booming metropolis. Um, postmodern architecture, uh, the weather, the climate, very similar. And then the farmers market here really drew me in. Um, it was the first time I'd seen you know, that kind of situation since India. Um, my parents used to go to the farmer's market there like, you know, once a month and once like twice a month and stock up on veggies. And, you know, here I went to the state farmer's market. It's open like 363 and a half days a year. And it's, and it wasn't like, you know, now farmer's markets are like bougie and like, you know, um, there's lots of guys with beards selling like cool (laughs) heirloom radishes. And that's great. I love that stuff too. But this is just like, you know, um, people from Johnson County who just been farming and they just have tomatoes and, you know, in the summer and like, you know, okra and eggplant and, you know, sweet potatoes and mustard greens in the winter. And like, I just thought, wow, you could just really eat here. Um, and there were all these like Asian markets and a lot of Indian people, not that I was like ever really part of an Indian community, but it was to me, like the food part of it was kind of a draw and, I don't know. Everybody was just really nice. It just felt like a community. And then I later found out that like the, the person, the, the town that I'm from in India, Chandigarh was built in the fifties and it was designed after the British had left and the prime minister, the first prime minister Nehru had, um, 
selected an architect who was from Raleigh to, to design the city. And that kind of blew my mind when I found out, like, you know, <laughs> living here after, you know, 18, 20 years, I was like, what? That is crazy. But what happened was, what happened was he, um, he kind of laid the plans down and he was working on the project and flying back and forth from Raleigh to Chandigarh and his plane crashed and he died. And then the project went to Le Cabousier, the famous French architect who always is credited for designing Chandigarh. And that's who I was thought was like, you know, the architect of, of my hometown, but it was actually somebody from Raleigh who designed wow. I know, it's so wild. That's an incredible story. It's so crazy. And for you to kind of find find yourself, you know, sort of recalibrating yourself on your journey of, you know, through music and through, you know, through New York City to Amherst and then Randomly. <clears throat> sort of it, yeah, yeah, wow. But there's just something that speaks. I think places, you know, like much like we were saying about guitars, guitars that can kind of speak to you. I think places are the same way, and that's definitely as a touring musician, uh, um, one of the one of the benefits you have of living out of that van with that small backpack or <laughs> suitcase of clothes in in a, in a guitar case, you get to see a lot of of the world or of the you know of the country. Yeah, and you kind of and you know places can can show you can show themselves to you, and you can you can resonate. Hundred percent. I mean, every place feels mm -hmm. different, and you feel differently in them, and sometimes you like yourself in a place and sometimes you don't you know it's it's pretty wild like i believe that um there's an oh, inherent so energy in places i think not to get too hippie but you know no 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 i'm with you i'll go all the way um so so then this is a good chance to also you know transition into food you know bring up farmer's market and raleigh and where where did your food journey begin we kind of talked about music and sort of where that began but now parallel i imagine parallel to that food is as part of the same sort of story yeah i mean you or know is there, are it's, they separate or how does that work it's you know in tandem it's parallel um it is maybe older uh, maybe not you know my first memories are like in India, like my grandmother used to live with us and she wasn't that great of a cook, but she cooked every day. Um, my mom was definitely a much better cook than her, but um, she was always in the kitchen. And so, you know, there'd be like, we had a big reel to reel player. So there'd be music playing and then the kitchen was there and I'd go see Bobby and she was in the kitchen, you know, she was like boiling milk because we would get like raw milk delivered. You know, that's just what that's just life, you know, and she would mm -hmm. like always scrape the bottom of the pot with, you know, the, the, the cream that would stick and the caramelize. And, um, she let me do things that my mom wouldn't let me do because it was too dangerous. And my mom was right. Cause I burned myself real bad. <laughs> but, um, but you know, the, those two things were always kind of, I, I think I'm just like a dreamer and I, food was always kind of like, uh, a modes of a mode of transportation for me. And so it was music and it was just like, I would get in my head and be sort of like feel the feelings <laughs> that food brought me. But when we came, when we moved, you know, we moved to a real, like a two bedroom apartment. There were three kids. Um, we were three, a family of three children and my parents and my mom was working. And, um, but you know, we ate a homemade meal every night and I became her de facto sous chef. Um, <laughs> so, you know, from the age of nine or 10, she, I would get home at three, she would call me, um, and give me instructions on how to start dinner. And so I just kind of learned wow. how to cook, but I, like I wanted to, you know, my sister was pre-med and she didn't really care about food, um, the way I did. And my brother was, um, the youngest son. So he didn't really get to have to do very much. <laughs> he was excused <laughs> from all activity chores. Um, so I, I learned and, um, I just kind of had a knack for it. And then when I left home, um, 
you know, even in the dorm, like there was a kitchen in the basement and I would always like make, you know, chicken curry and it would be like enough for 15 people. (laughs) I just didn't really know how to do it another way. I've always had like massive dinner parties, um, until I opened a restaurant and then I just had a massive dinner party every night in a different <laughs> building. <laughs> That's amazing. But, but again, paralleling, at least in, you know, in my experience with touring, especially touring on the cheap, anybody that could cook or you, if you can find yourself comfortable in a kitchen, it's a huge benefit to the, to the touring party, to the community, to the, even the people of the town. That's right. You know, you find you make food for people in a small town that they've never seen before you know we we've freaked out many people in the i remember with one in in dakota we we went to the grocery store and for about five dollars put bought enough groceries and lentils to make a, a curry and the and the kids they freaked out like my house smells funny you can't do that anymore. yeah we're staying you know we're staying sleeping on someone's floor and we said oh we'll cook you dinner and, yeah. you know we could do it on the cheap but it, they they freaked out they didn't know what the, with all this you know what to do with the smell of onion being fried i know it's pan. like my knots never <laughs> been the same <laughs> I've had the very exact same with lentils, you know, lentils, like you saute ginger, garlic and onions and, you know, Uh bloom some cumin. And yeah, that we ate that meal in hotel rooms all across the country. And, uh, well, my hotel rooms, it sounds glamorous. Uh, motel sixes with eight of us in there, you know, or in some random person's house where, you know, the, there's like seven dogs and no toilet oh. paper. You know? Oh yeah. But we, our band ate pretty oh. well because I was obsessed with it and I just couldn't, you know, yeah. I stopped eating fast food when we pretty much went like right when we started touring. So we would always go to the grocery stores and we had like a, a plastic tub under the homemade bench in the van and it was filled mm-hmm. with, you know, interesting things that would make uh, a Subway salad, <laughs> you know, become a meal. Um, I said we didn't eat fast food, but we did get, uh, you know, spinach late at night from Subway is a is a lifesaver sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's actually and it's you, know, you can be relatively healthy for relatively cheap. Yes. that way as well. Hundred percent. Yeah, we were we <clears throat> uh, Dean, my my partner in the band No Age and I, we we're both vegan and and very broke for most of our career. So it was a very <laughs> how do we eat vegan across the country for not much money? You know, you get a handful of things and just you just need some hot water and a and a pan. That's right. That's right. A, a hot plate and a, uh, you know maybe too much bread, yeah. but yeah. You have to be real creative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we at one point we brought a um, one tour. I forget what year it was, but we brought a a rice cooker and we we'd put the rice in there before the show started. We put it behind the drums and nice. then, then we play the show. By the time the show was done, the the rice would be done and then we could eat dinner. Perfectly steamed. Was, yeah, <laughs> put some nutritional yeah. yeast on there and like you're good. <laughs> yeah, it, it it got kind of messy towards the end. I don't think we were able to keep it clean. We kind of had to ditch it for for uh, hygiene purposes. Yeah, I think we, were, we weren't the smartest or the most you know hygienic at that well point, you know ourselves. who wants to be on rice cleaning duty when you're loading out you know? <laughs> like yeah. rice cooker cleaning yeah. duty it's like yeah. our cooler yeah. would get pretty rank sometimes you know? yeah that's the nature of the, of the age and the lifestyle you're kind of living at that point too it's hard to kind that's of keep right. that stuff together kids these days don't know oh. how good they have it <laughs> incredible so so food was just part of your life it was entertainment it was it was a you know service you know to kind of the community and then 
what what at what point does it shift focus and what and you know how do you go from from you know guitar and and you know creative music focus to then you know shifting into uh, a food focus it kind of happened simultaneously like you know after my music management career just kind of imploded because all the bands broke up that i was managing and i was like well now what you know i thought i was like a failure i was 25 years old and like you know my my first like self uh my first entrepreneurship had failed um so i got a job in a restaurant <laughs> and i started playing music and um i was cooking at this like you know kind of sandwich place but it was kind of more than that um we had specials and so i was doing all the specials there i was making nine dollars an hour and uh, working, you know, 14 hour kitchen days. Um, and I loved it, but I also hated it because <laughs> it was like, you know, all of the, um, all of the things about a restaurant kitchen were like, I'm the only one who cares, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and then when we started touring, I was like, I can't afford to work in the kitchen. Can I please bartend? And so he said, yes. And my boss said, I can't give you a raise in the kitchen, not even 50 cents. So, but you can bartend. If you can hack as hack it as a bartender, you can stay. And so I did. And, you know, we were busy bar and um, I was a good bartender. That, that style of bartending, high volume, you know, a lot of money. Um, and so I did that and toured and somehow they let me keep my weekend shifts when I came home from tour. So that's, I just worked wow. in that restaurant. And in the meantime, Paul um, and two friends opened a music venue downtown called Kings, um, still called Kings. And um, I wasn't, you know, it was like, I have, I don't want to have any part of booking a venue. I don't want to run a venue. Like I want to be in a band. I don't want to like, you know, work for bands. Uh, I was so scarred from that whole part of the management thing and it was hard enough to just like manage the bands that I was in um so that was happening and so I helped them with their bar program and um then that building got torn down um you know we left the Cherry Valance we started Birds of Avalon that that tour you know that thing was kind of taken off and then that building got torn down for like you know the convention center was being built um and there was a whole period for three years. We tried to find a space and I wanted to have like a really small food aspect to it. We wanted to have like a bar that wasn't attached, like wasn't kind of controlled by the music venue, like the, the bar that would be open all the time. The uh, food part that was like a stationary food truck is what I wanted, um, would be open when there were shows and then they'd, they'd be shows. Um, well, we didn't have any money, so we couldn't find the spot that was like built out that way. We were looking for a second generation place. We didn't really know what we were doing. And so we weren't really, you know, we kept looking at spaces that were shelves and we we're like, oh, we'll never be able to afford to build this out. And we and we were right. So the, the space that we found that was already built out and was not thriving, not doing well, was a music venue on top and a weird shitty pizza place in the middle and a basement bar <laughs> and there's 11,000 square feet. Um, That's huge. Huge. But we were so young, naive, hungry, and, um, you know, had stars in our eyes and we just said yes. And we just did it. And we came up with, you know, the money to buy the lease and, um, and then we were off and, uh, then I found myself, you know, with a lease on a 3,500 square foot restaurant that wow. once, you know, we did a very slow, a lot of DIY 
build out and um so I became a chef because I had a restaurant to run so um <laughs> dummy 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 <laughs> but it's but it's great right I mean it's the story of of being in band if you knew all the stuff there was to know you would never do That's it right. you know or at least you know it's the part of the way of you know like well what do we need to get this started or somebody grab a, some drums somebody grab a guitar and a microphone and and buy a van and, start, and go yeah yeah, yeah. Start playing, and then I imagine the similar sort of DIY aesthetic sounds like it factored into the the, the creation of your first restaurant. One hundred percent, so much. And you know, there's that fearlessness that you have when you've been on tour that you're like, well, you know, so let's, you know, <laughs> well that sucks. You know, today sucked, yeah. and like, what, what's it going to be tomorrow? Because you're in a different place, and your whole life changes every day. So I don't know. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a a dumb, naive, fearless, um, self like immolating kind of spirit that I think we're, we're okay with. Uh, I'm in therapy now. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're processing it all. got digging it, digging it through. But if there is something, you know, just the, the, the confidence that is afforded to stupidity, you know what I mean? There's just, <laughs> well put. there's just, there's, there's just, you know, it's the definition of, of your twenties. It's like, I'm, I'm too stupid to not be horribly confident in everything I do. Yeah. And that, whether that's music or, and you know, finance, creative, you know, education, all that stuff. You're just like, you don't know, you don't know what you're doing, yeah. but you're so sure of yourself that you know everything that's right that's um, right but i think it's interesting people i talk to a little bit about about food you know that food is this can be a scary thing whether it's you know you're brought up in a thing where your mom or or, or grandma created the best food and it was off limits to you you know you could never be as good as them you know i think there's there can be some big role models mm -hmm. in that sort of way or just you know, you make, you burn, you burn a potato or you burn a, po a pot of rice one too many times. And you're just like, I, I'm not doing this. I can't, I don't know how to do it. I'm not good at it. It's just like picking up a guitar. I try to play if I practiced for 30 minutes and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm no good at this. I can't learn an instrument. I can't cook. You know, it must be something people say, but it sounds like, you know, you, you were able to, you know, that was never an issue for oh, you. Uh, on the contrary. I think for me, like the shame of not being good mm. was something that I, I would think, you know, probably was just so used to having that feeling from my whole life that that was, you know, it was just like my little buddy, you know, my buddy Shane. <laughs> and um, it was just a fuel in a way, you know, it's just, um, I, I, just circumstances were such that there quitting was just not an option because we would have lost like literally everything, you know, the, we, we mortgaged our house and like, you know, that was like, not, we couldn't fail. Um, wow. and so we, we just, you know, it became really real. And the first few years of the restaurant were horribly difficult for me emotionally because of all the things that you just said, um, you know, cooking on command, uh, and doing it perfectly every time. I don't think anybody can really do that, but you know, there's just, it's just kind of like, it's like playing music. It's like anything. There's just a lot of illusions that, you know, you find yourself needing to like, you know, thinking that you have to fit into, but nobody tells you that you can have a dual career. Nobody tells you that, you know, mm -hmm. being a chef isn't just about being a great cook all the time. Being a chef is really so much more, um, great cooks don't necessarily make great chefs and great chefs aren't always the best cooks. You know, there, there's, 
each of those skills should intersect um, deeply enough for it to be really a good situation. But um, there's so many skills that are involved in that. And confidence, like true confidence and belief in yourself is like one of them. And you don't learn that until like you're, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it takes to learn that. I certainly didn't have the ego to, um, to pretend. So I really made a lot of mistakes and, um, took me a long time to even call myself a chef and the identity crisis that went along with like what kind of food, you know, because I'm not, it was always hyphenated too. And it didn't really fit into a Yelp category. It didn't fit, you know, I didn't know what to put on Facebook. What kind of restaurant is this? You know, I'm in a small Southern city, you know, like expressing Southern North Carolina produce through the lens of like all of Asia. I'm an idiot, wow. idiot. <laughs> Just Sounds delicious. Open a curry house, yeah. you dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm not hyper familiar with, with the world of, of chef and, and restaurants. I mean, can you tell me a little bit of, you know, you mentioned the difference between being a good cook and a good chef and, and, and growing into this sort of role or giving you the, giving yourself the permission to sort of grow into the role of a chef. Tell me what, tell me a little bit about what a chef is. Um, a chef is, you know, chief a chef is somebody mm -hmm. who is like able to manage and successfully run a kitchen and a restaurant and all aspects of it so you know people don't talk enough about sourcing like being um aware of where your products come from um who provides them i mean there are easy ways to do everything you know you can run a sports bar and you can be a chef at a sports bar and you're running that kitchen but you're getting everything from one truck and it's coming in boxes and it's all frozen or a lot of it is frozen. You're not, you're just doing the same thing every week. You know, you're, you're dropping French fries, you're making tater tots, you're doing potato skins. Maybe you have a fish special. Cool. But you're working, you're, it's easy. It's easier. Like you're not worried about like, is this paprika different than this paprika? When is the tomato going to be ideal for a raw tomato uh, dish versus a cooked tomato dish. You know, where am I, how am I going to manage my costs? Um, is this person that I just hired on this station, like, are they going to last? And if I want them to last, what do they really want to do? How are, you know, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What do they need to come in to work every day and feel more confident and not feel defeated? repeatedly you know there's defeats a part of the the growing process but after a while people just can't get up anymore you know um mm. you know how do you fix the leaky sink how do you you know manage the janitorial costs of your dishwasher like you know there's so many things so many aspects to it it's a puzzle and to me a, a great chef understands food so deeply that it's not really about you know your ability to like you're not chopping shallots after a certain point, you know, you're, you're teaching somebody to do that and you're making sure that they know how to sharpen their knives. And that's like the best way I can currently say, you know, um, you want them to smell that freshly ground coriander, uh, as opposed to the powdered shit that you could buy in the grocery store. And it's like, there's no point. You're just putting dirt in your food. Like this is why coriander <laughs> exists and this is what it brings to the party. Like, 
they're not going to be with you forever. Your staff isn't going to stay with you forever, but you want them to leave. And even if it's a bad situation, they're going to remember something you taught them. And that's your job as a chef is to like impart the beauty of food and the, and the wonder that is nature. That's our job as a chef. Um, you know, cooking, wow. cooking, anybody can do that. And not, well, well that's incredible. Yeah, most people. <laughs> but but also tell me a little bit about the front facing side of that too, like the role of the chef to the to the customer and to the sort of the, the restaurant overall experience. I mean, I think that's it's incredible. I mean, everything I'm still processing everything you just said about chef to staff. I mean, there's there's um, there's a million little tendrils and lightning bolts going off of where I could you know, the correlations to band and to all these other kinds of world. But but I'm curious also, you know, your relationship to your I wouldn't call them your audience, but I don't your your yeah, customers. Yeah, what is our that guests, like? you know, we call them guests. guests yeah. Um, (laughs) um, well, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's something I'm still trying to figure out. Um, you know, there, there's a a lot of it. When when Garland first opened, um, we had a lot of really bad reviews and, you know, I think about that now because I just opened, you know, Paul and I just opened a restaurant and the, uh, reception is so different. And, but we, we got our first really bad review the other day and I can't help but think about, you know, the vitriol that was in those early reviews for Garland were um, the thing that stuck with me the most was like, I don't understand why, you know, Indian food shouldn't be this expensive. Um, Why don't they, they only have one chicken dish on their menu. Uh, This is not authentic. Uh, You know, there, it was so much of it was like really, I feel like they, you know, people reading my insecurities and just like, you know, oh, rating them on, on, on Yelp. And I was like, fuck, man. Like, you know, I felt like I was in a race to figure it out, you know. Um, the, but the audience, the the best side of it is like so many people, which, you know, a lot of times I was just kind of trapped in the kitchen. So Paul would have this interaction with our guests way more than I did. And he would just say the things that like, you know, you dream of like, oh, I didn't know what this was going to be. And when I ate it, it made me remember my grandmother. Like, you know, that the, the uniting wow. factor of food, people just um, being their most vulnerable, like their least guarded in, in the best situation when they're sitting at a table with somebody they like or love and they order something, they're like hopefully having the best moment of their day. Their guard is down and you give them something that makes them feel something nice or makes them nostalgic or makes them happy, gives them pleasure. Yeah. It's superficial or whatever. But I think that connection is, is really like the core of, of the joy of life, you know? And, um, if you can bring that to somebody, it's like, it's pretty damn cool. You know, it's like being on stage and making somebody happy, like making somebody happy with something you do is, is, that's life. That's like the thing. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, it's so visceral and it's so personal. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think, you know, that, that, yeah, the relationship that people have with, with food and, and the, and to, to love a restaurant and to come back to a restaurant yeah. and to kind of have that, that excitement about a restaurant and you tell your friends, that's right? right. Which is always the best the thing. It's the compliment. best thing you could ever hope for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no, there's no amount of advertising or marketing you can do than just one word of mouth. Yeah, we never, we never did. This is great. We never spent any money on that. It's just like, you know, if, you, you get that feeling and you're trying to chase that feeling again. That's pretty awesome. You know, and if you can deliver that same thing again, like 
you know, this is how I remembered it. And it's exactly how I remembered it. That consistency is really hard. That's, that's also chef. Right. Right. I imagine there's a certain amount of, you know, growth that you expect from yourself or change that you want to, you know, change the menu constantly and kind of explore and be creative. But I imagine there's some people that just come in and order the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm one of those people that when I, when I like the dish I like, I, I'm going to keep coming back to that place for that one dish. Yeah. What is I mean, this is a little, little inside baseball, I guess, or sort of a singular idea, but what is your relationship to, to, to that sort of the, the, the diversity versus just the, the basics? Yeah. How do you manage that? I mean, that's, it's a puzzle too you know for a long time I was yeah. really scared to change things on the menu I didn't have time first of all to work on stuff and the, the things that were on the menu were like everybody knew how to do them in the kitchen and people liked them and I, you know there was a lot of fear for like the first two three years and then you know you just kind of start um, realizing these are the repeats and these are the, the things that you just kind of get a sense that like people are just getting this because they don't have an option right like it's mm. kind of a lazy order as opposed to this like, oh, I, I go there. you got to get this one thing, you know. I've never been a signature dish kind of person. Like people always say, what's your signature recipe? It's like you don't want to do that at home. Like you can't. You don't <laughs> You don't have the stuff. Like it'll take you four days and you're not going to. It's like just come to the restaurant <laughs> and eat it. Restaurant food is different <laughs> than home food. Um, but I, you know, the pandemic kind of like gave me a lot of permission to be fearless and like, you know, I have just like a non I'm not a sentimental person anyway. And I was just like, well, that's just coming off the menu. Like it, it gave me permission huh. to, because it was all going to be over anyway. And I didn't think that we were going to survive. So it was just like, just do the things that like you want to do and don't do the things that you don't want to do. Cause fuck it. Like, what does it mean anyway? You know, let's just, yep. it's a day to day situation at this point. So don't waste your yeah. time. Make, Make that experimental record. Who gives a shit? That's it's, right. It's your post-personal weird record you want to make. Put it out because who cares? Exactly you're not going to you're not going to have a pop hook. You're not you're never going to go back on the road. Yep. You know, live live music's it's, over. Make the personal record. Yeah. yeah, and you know, losing I lost my mom too, and that like whole thing oh, I'm like sorry. really makes you think about mortality and like you know time and 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 the fleeting nature of it, and you know they're really like don't get in your head and don't, don't be paralyzed by the things that you think people expect of you. It's just, no, life is yeah. too short. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the thing, you know, when you're talking about reviews, you know, of, 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 you know, getting reviews for the restaurant is, you know, and obviously music is, is heavily reviewed. I'm sure you were experienced that as well. And especially in that era, mm -hmm. um, when you were playing, what is there, what's worse? A, 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 a bad restaurant review or a bad record review? It all hurt. <laughs> it all hurts it's the all same. Bad. Yeah, all it's bad. the same okay. wound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, but is it the same triumph as well? A good, a good, a good record review, a good, a good restaurant review. Um, I guess so. You know, a, a record review yeah. happens from like somebody who's like professional, like they're writing. Mm -hmm. Restaurant reviews tend to be, you know, some Joe schmo, but it's really like you know good or bad like the bad ones you really remember the good ones you remember the ones that really get it like they say a few things that you're like that was my intention and they they like recognize my intention and that's that's like the thing and and also like just like in a band a restaurant is more you know I'm not a singer songwriter like this is a collaborative effort so much and no matter what you still feel responsible for you know how good of a collaboration it is. It's your job as, you know, 
a key member in a band, I guess, to like make sure that mm. things are, are happening right. And your own headspace affects that. And, you know, you're in a, in a restaurant, you might be training somebody and they, they mess up and they really, it, it alters somebody's experience. What are you going to do? You know, it's just a moment in time, but yeah, at the, at yeah. the moment, just that day get, when you get a back. Yeah. 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 Um, what, uh, I, I, let me think how to transition into this one. So, uh, do you know Brooks Headley? Did I he do. ever come? He's he's come he, he's come up in this sort of similar time and frame. Um, I've gotten to, to know him as as a drummer, and then when he became a, a, a pastry chef, and we we were able to to eat at at his restaurant a, a handful of times. And he had this habit of bringing courses out and describe. And I think he knew because he knew his audience. He knew who we were and what, what we shared a music language. He would bring courses out, and he would say, "This is like the Faith Void split. <laughs> on this side you have this, and on this side you have this, and this is." Where and he would give us, uh, you know, uh, uh, and I don't think I don't think he thought that while he was making it or had any intention. I think it was something he, he must have come up with between the kitchen and our table just to, to mess with us and give us an exp- a thrill and also something different for his day. I think he had a very straight job for a lot of years. And so the chance to, to stoke out his friends, you know, gave him a little bit of a, a, a breath of relief. But do, do you ever find yourself um, in relationship to dishes, you know, equating songs or styles or, or feelings? Because a lot of time, you know, it is a nostalgia or it is a feeling like, what, do you have an experience in any kind of relationship like that like a song inspired a dish or a dish sort of relates to a particular feeling that a song could also relate to um yes in a, in a lot of ways i mean brooks is like a really brilliant person so i'm not gonna even like touch that uh, he's <laughs> he is one of a kind and i don't know him well we actually only got to know each other through instagram like once i started oh. cooking so we didn't know each other in the music world incredible um but I think of, so I've always referred now to Garland as a prog project. We were a prog band. We did so many parts, um, everything in every song, everything in every dish, like everything had like layers and layers and layers and, you know, um, and I want this new restaurant to be a disco remix of like three riffs and that's it. Like, I just want it to be simple, but I really think of, uh, dishes and, um, when we're coming up with dishes in, in terms of frequencies, like I often say it needs more bass or it needs more treble. Um, and wow. I think that really translates like, you know, umami, I think of his bass and like acid and then there's layers, you know, like, do you want to hear that of the cymbal or do you want to hear like the, you know, the, the pick hitting the guitar string? Like there's different things that are satisfying that a dish wants, but you know, you always start with like, you know, you're in service to the song, like you're in service to an ingredient or you're in service to an idea. Um, I think uh, things more in that, in that, um, sort of, uh, template or structure, I think more than particular bands. I mean, gosh, like it'd be cool to do a whole David Bowie series on a menu that that's an inspired idea right now. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I really like, Prague versus disco is the thing that's kind of in, in theme for the last couple of months. Um, and oh. I'm, I'm really dedicated to that. Like, I just want to have fun. I want people to have fun. I want it to be casual, uh, ish. Well done. You know, like people mm-hmm. slight disco is like being, being simple and it's not, it's not easy to play that kind of music. You have to have a lot of restraint mm-hmm. and you have to have a lot of chops, uh, and make it look easy. But ultimately people are there to party and, 
it's got mm-hmm. a good beat and you can dance to it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, like ESG. Yeah. Or something exactly. along those lines. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Right. And, and which leads me to the next idea that do you play music or, I mean, is there background music in the restaurants? Always. Yeah. And do you choose that? And what is, what it's that experience like as a musician and, you know, as a, as a chef? Um, what, it's what super do? important. I don't no- normally have time to like do the playlist. Paul does. And he's, he's really good at it. But like in the new place, we've had a, uh, some curveballs, and um, I'll say two things about this. At Garland, every single time, I'd say 95% of the time in the nine years that we were open, when I'd walk out of the kitchen, the music, there would be no music playing, and it would be in between songs. And I cannot tell you how many times that happened, and I would immediately be like, what the fuck? There's no, oh, okay. <laughs> like, it's it's just between songs. Just calm down. Um, lately, like, now we... Um, I mean, we've always been really careful about what we play. Like, you know, we go to a restaurant and, you know, it's like some weird Pandora jukebox with commercials. And it's just like, I want to die for them. Like, it just, what are yeah. you doing? You know, they're, they're, yeah. it's it's such a big part of the vibe. And um, yeah. How do you say I don't care any louder than that? Like, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, it's like it a, doesn't matter. A dentist office. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, it exactly. doesn't matter what kind of salt you use. Yes, it does. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good that's a good way of thinking about you know, I guess yeah, those little things you can pick up on. Does a restaurant give a shit? Yeah, or, you know, exactly. How, how dedicated are they? You know, if they have good music playing. That's right. Oh man, wow. Well, I have I have a million more questions, and I could I feel like we could talk all day, but I don't want to take up all of your time. I really appreciate you um, taking the time, and and it's been a pleasure to meet you. God, and, it's been and, such a great conversation. Story. I agree. Yeah. Like, yeah, we could let's let's do part two. <laughs> yes, <laughs> double yeah, album. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. And then, yeah. And then are you still playing guitar? Are you still, yeah. what is the, what is the activity of the band yeah. situation and music situation? Obviously restaurant takes up 140% of your day. Well, is there ever time to we play? We closed Garland in August at the end of August and, um, open Aja, uh, three weeks ago. And so we, we did have like a few months where, you know, we were playing, um, pretty regularly. Uh, but then we moved houses and our guitar stuff hasn't moved over here. So I'm, I'm like dying inside a little bit that I haven't touched a guitar in, in four weeks. Um, but I just need to go get my stuff and set it up. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't have the chops I used to, but it's okay. I don't care. Like it still feels good to play and sometimes things sound good and that's, that makes me happy. That's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. Oh well, well, Chidi, thank you so much uh, you, for Randy. being a guest it's here. Been, it's I been lovely. It. Hopefully, we'll talk I hope soon. So too. Take care. <laughs> Thanks. Wow, there she is, Chidi Kumar. I am so blown away and so impressed, and really just inspired. You know, I want to go out and buy some fresh cumin and produce at a farmer's market and make something. I definitely love to cook, but I've never really thought about it as in-depth or sort of with any kind of real purpose. Like uh, she was explaining her process of running that kitchen. I mean, what what a, just an incredible story. And uh, I think really indicative of, of everybody's, you know, hyphenate journey. You know, you kind of start off, you know, just trying to survive and then finding yourself at different crossroads in your life and, you know, deciding to switch it up or combine more than one thing or just try to try to make it all make sense, you know, and you find yourself in a totally different world. But part of that is, I think, you know, a lot of us have been used to just living in different worlds and sort of wearing many hats 
you know, all the time. There's something very familiar about that. I don't think people in a hyphenate, uh, you know, career space or lifestyle really, you know, are that uncomfortable with it. It sort of just seems to always make sense. So it's interesting to kind of hear that from her and, you know, from her background, sort of where she learned those sort of skills of having to be a chameleon and sort of fit in. And uh, just yeah, really insightful. I, I was just bl- blown away and super impressed and inspired. So uh, if you are in Raleigh, North Carolina, please go to Aja. It's A-J-J-A, her new restaurant. She's just opened up. And also do yourself a favor and go listen to some Birds of Avalon. Really cool band. And uh, go way back to Cherry Valance, too, and check that out, too, if you're feeling a little bit more energetic, a little punkier. And, um, yeah, really, really inspired. We'll talk to you guys soon.